Welcome to the DermVet Podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Bourgeois, a board-certified veterinary dermatologist practicing in Portland, Oregon with animal dermatology clinics. I'm also a mom of two, just trying to find the balance like everyone else. Let's learn to ditch the itch, cytology, everything, and make derm more fun than frustrating. Thank you for coming to another episode of the Derm Vet Podcast. Today I have Dr. Brittany Lancelotti joining me to talk about a really important topic, and that is how to implement fear-free methods into our dermatology cases. These are cases that we see often and lifelong, so I want to assure the pet and client are comfortable. It's also a much more fun way to practice medicine, especially as we're all curbside and already really stressed out. So I hope you enjoy this discussion. Dr. Lancelotti works at Animal Dermatology Clinic in Pasadena, California. You'll also hear at the end that she is in the process of releasing her passion project, your vet wants you to know. All right. Well, I am so excited to have Dr. Lancelotti, Brittany Lancelotti with me. We are both vet moms and we're both vet mom dermatologists. So even before we started recording the episode, we were already gabbing a lot how this is very strangely a break for us. Like, uh-huh. yeah, like this is my, I have one kid napping. I have one kid preoccupied with my husband and dog. And it almost feels like, especially in this COVID world, this is almost a weird hour vacation we get to take recording this. Yeah. It's really nice. That's exactly what's happening in my house too. One yeah. kid is napping the other one's with dad. Yeah. And isn't it weird that we were talking about how we miss so much, just having the opportunity to get our kids out and exercise. I mean, right now we are in a pause officially in Oregon. So we really like things are closed down. Um, and so now we are to the point where recording a podcast and just seeing people virtually seems like about the most socialization I get right now. It's such a special treat. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm really excited that it's you joining me for this special treat who gets it. You know, also is like super passionate about our field And this is a topic that I love and am passionate about, but I know this is specifically a super passionate topic for you. And, you know, we became fear-free certified in our clinic, myself, the other doctor, and a lot of our staff members. Oh gosh, it's probably been like maybe a year and a half to two years now. Um, Time is forever fleeting, but I know that you were kind of the one that really spearheaded that within our company. And you, you've really been passionate about this for a long time. So this is a topic super near and dear to your heart and fear free is its own beast, right? Like we all know about fear free, but both of us being dermatologists and being certified fear free, there's a lot of things specifically in dermatology, um, that we might use some of these fear free methods with. So I think this is going to be a great, fun discussion and one I'm super excited for you to join me with today. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm really excited about this too. I love talking about fear-free to other veterinarians. I love talking about fear-free to my clients as well. And it's just something that even before the whole fear-free, you know, um, company and and, um, certification, there was a lot of aspects of using positive reinforcement and behavior techniques in how I approached veterinary practice. And so to see this whole revolution kind of come about um, within veterinary medicine has been really exciting for me. That's awesome. Yeah. I really feel like you were one of the first people I heard talking about it. Like, you know, just the thought of 
that being a huge passion of yours. Like, I think it's really become really special to a lot of us, but I really remember you being one of the first that was just kind of lecturing about it as far as dermatology and being really excited about it, getting, you know, we're working on getting our whole entire company, all the clinics, we both work for the same company, um, certified. So I really do think a lot of that was due to you. So you are the OG, uh, as far as I'm concerned, that gets to talk about this. So we'll start out kind of um, easy. So uh, we know the way that veterinarians have practiced over the years has changed a lot. Like when we think about, say, 20 years ago, before we were even veterinarians, even when I started, and I've only been out um, 10 years now since I graduated from vet school, there was a lot more, you know, rough handling, mm-hmm. um, restraint scruffing, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you kind of relied on your technician, like you wanted the technician that held the firmest and hardest. And, you know, you should never get bit if a tech's holding hard enough kind of mentality, but that's really been changing a lot. I I feel like the last five to 10 years. So with fear free becoming more widely practiced, just what are the main reasons you think it's important? And I want to look at this from a couple different aspects. So let's start with the patient. So obviously, why do you think this is so important with dermatology um, to practice fear-free methods with our patients? Oh gosh, there are so many different reasons. Um, And for patients, that stressful experience at a vet is going to cause them to release a ton of cortisol. And we all know how damaging high levels of cortisol can be to the body. So How many times have you had to call a pet owner whose cat you did blood work on and say to them, well, um, there, there's an increase in the glucose level. I don't know if maybe it's an indication of early diabetes, or it could just because your pet was stressed when it came to see us or the dog that comes in is super stressed. And the next day the pet owner calls and says, oh, my dog has diarrhea. Oh, well, that's just stress colitis. Well, that's not really something that we want to have. Like how, how come there's a term for stress at a veterinary visit? Really? We shouldn't have that. Um, but how nice would it be if we could get accurate blood pressure readings on patients where we're concerned about hypertension and how many times have you written on a record unable to perform, you know, uh, otoscopy because of patient temperament? These patients that we're seeing, they are suffering because they are too stressed to allow us to do a really thorough physical exam. And so they have conditions that are going undiagnosed. And if we can decrease their stress level, we can be able to provide them better medical care overall. Um, So the pets are going to benefit from better veterinary care in a more relaxed setting by incorporating those fear-free techniques and how we approach those animals. I think one of the big things for me too, as a dermatologist, since I've really learned more about fear-free became certified and have been implementing these things is we all know dermatology is chronic and that we're going to keep seeing these patients back 99% of the time. And I feel like sometimes we used to just blanket term certain pets as, you know, stressed or we'd see them on our schedule and it would stress us out because we would (laughs) knew it was not going to be the easiest case to see but then we weren't doing anything to make it better and they still have to keep seeing us. So I, when you really implement these things, you can teach uh, patients 
to not be so fearful in your clinic. Maybe it's not their favorite place to ever be, but you really can teach them to be more accepting of things. And I've had clients, uh, especially now as we are practicing curbside still where it's really fearful for most of these patients coming in because they're not, they're stripped away from their owners at the front door and it's different, but I've had clients actually say that we are one of the clinics that they walk their pet walks into easiest. Like they're most, you're usually pretty fearful, but you know, they don't just put on the brakes when they see our door. So I think what's really important about this from the patient aspect, I agree with everything you've said, but also I think that you can really teach those pets to be more accepting of coming into the clinic. So we can with, you know, positive reinforcement and a lot of the things we're going to talk about today, like whether it's medications or taking a step back on what's important in that particular exam we can teach them if they are going to have to keep seeing us the rest of their lives to not view this as the worst place in the world. And I've had pets, just like you said, I have been the person who said, well, I can't do an an otoscopy exam. The owner doesn't want to sedate and they're the pet's just not going to be accepting of it. I've gotten to the point where I've worked up to where that pet is totally fine with us doing that exam so that we don't have to keep writing that in the record. So Mm -hmm. I think just the chronicity of how long we deal with these patients too, we really should be advocating to make it the best experience for them so that they don't just keep hating us more and more and more because that recheck's not going to go away. It's very rarely we write recheck none. Exactly. Yeah. And, and with those pets that have those chronic diseases, you know, the, the clients, they know their pets and they see how that pet reacts when they have to bring them to the vet. So if the pet is stressed out, um, or if, if the client is stressed out because, you know, spot or fluffy is a complete nervous wreck, whenever it goes for an exam, then they're going to have, the client's going to have that inner, um, the client's going to have that internal struggle with themselves when they need to decide whether or not it's worth it to bring the animal in to get checked up. So we're going to be missing pets who need veterinary care because the owners don't want them to be stressed to come in and see us. So it's really important that we're addressing that as far as the clients uh, are, are concerned so that they know that, all right, it's not that big of a deal. The pet really likes going there. Something's up and it needs to be checked out. I have no problem bringing the pet in to see my veterinarian. Yeah. And that was my next question. You, you went into it beautifully was what, as far as the client, like we think about the patient, but what, as far as the client does fear free really help. And I think it's everything you said, they are the ones that have to make the decision to not only, you know, financially, financially, but emotionally commit to having that pet come in. And sometimes they don't think it's even the cost of an exam fee. It's that they are so bonded to their pet. That if they know every time, you know, the cat's gonna um, throw up because they're so nervous that they bring a a pet in or they are going to put the brakes on or, you know, they're a nervous wreck waiting for their pet to come out because they know their pet's a nervous wreck. And we're so bonded to our pets that if we can have a better experience for the patient, it's a better experience for the client. So actually just, I love that you brought that up. I kind of have like an example of a cat that we, that we still see who's pretty fearful. And I remember the owner brought a very environmentally flea allergic cat and it was uh, our first exam. And she basically said, this is your one shot to get my cat better. I was like, what? (laughs) uh, That's a lot of pressure, but probably not going to happen. So then, you know, as I was talking to her, her biggest thing was the cat just salivates and vomits and gets so worked up. 
um, on the car ride home from the vet. So then I said, well, what if we tried some techniques to see if we can make that better? And it ended up being a combination of, you know, and we used pharmaceuticals. So we would use some feel away as far as like pheromones, but then gabapentin for stress. And, and honestly, the cat also suffers from getting really car sick. So we would give, when he would come in the clinic after we did our exam, we'd give Serenia and on That's the way great. home, totally fine. And now the owner's like our biggest advocate. Like if we say we need to see that cat, she's like, sure, it sounds good because we've take we took the time to say, well, let's just not, I told her, I'm like, that's not realistic. I'm not going to never see your cat again. So let's just see if there's a way we can figure your cat out to make this not the worst experience for him. And, you know, shout out to Mitch the cat. Cause now he does a lot better. And so she, it was her fear bringing him in because of that reaction. And then the last kind of, viewpoint I want to view or look at is the veterinarian. So since you've really gotten involved learning fear-free, how, how has it changed the way you practice or the joy that you get or the emotions you get dealing with this as our job? Yeah. I mean, as far as veterinarians, come on, veterinary practice nowadays is so hard. Mm -hmm. COVID has completely turned veterinary medicine on its head and everybody I talk to is overwhelmed and they're struggling. And you know, as veterinarians, we want to be able to provide the best medical care to our patients. And that involves needing to see the pet when something is going on. And when I do see that pet, I need to be able to do a full physical exam. But guess what? My day is going to be so much more enjoyable if that pet that I see is relaxed and happy to be there with me. You know, I fight enough with my toddler at home. I don't want to fight with my patients in the hospital. Here, here. <laughs> you know? And it's not just veterinarians. It's our staff as well, who we absolutely depend on to make our days go smoothly. We are losing good technicians to burnout and to physical injury. If you practice fear-free medicine, it reduces both of those things. And that allows us to keep these really skilled medical professionals exactly where we need them. I love that. Like just thinking it from the, st I'm, I'm totally with you on the staff. Like our staff is so important in our clinic and I know yours too. And for me, like I, I say, you know what the biggest like, uh, income killer is for a hospital or profitability it's turnover turnover for sure. Totally. It's turnover. Like, you know, staff, they deserve a raise if they need it. You know, if they've been working hard and it's in the cards for them to get one, they deserve to get certified fear free. In my opinion, if you can afford it in your clinic, which most of us are doing really well right now, um, the craziness, like in that aspect pays off, we should mm -hmm. pay for them to get certified if they want to, because it turnover is a killer and we're all about clinic culture. And I feel like it's been much more enjoyable for me when I have lost that mentality of, you know, we'll just, if we need lab work, just pin them down or scruff them. It, it, I almost view it like a puzzle, like, okay, if yep. they're going to be scared or fearful, like what do we need to do to make this better? And I do feel like 90% of the clients you talk to when you say, well, you know, maybe we need to consider coming back with a, a medication on board or we did really well this time, but I think we could do it this way next time to make it better. They're so appreciative of that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like staff's really appreciative of that too. And I, I agree. I just think it makes it much more enjoyable to practice um, rather than having that old school pin them down mentality to view it. But maybe that's because we're dermatologists and we view things as puzzles anyway, because <laughs> that's what most derm cases are. 
No, but the staff love it. I mean, they, yeah. they get really excited to share their successes um, between each other. Like, oh, hey, you know, Ranger's coming in today. He does really well when you put an ice uh, an ice pack where he's going to get a cytopoint injection. Um, so, you know, they pass those um, those successes on to each other. And, and it really does. You talk about culture. It creates a culture of camaraderie. It creates a, a culture where fear-free is something that's valued um, and something that we encourage. Um, so I, I really think that um, if you create a culture where people are happy to come to work and enjoy what they're doing and see that the pets that they are helping are actually happy, um, then it's going to help to reduce that turnover. The ice point, the ice pack and the cytopoint spot. I have never even thought about that. Yeah. That is like such a good thought, like just to kind of numb it a little bit and sure. yeah, distracting. Okay. Yeah, see, I, okay. So leading into this, cause I'm excited. I feel like I'm going to learn a lot from you. Oh, I got um, so many actionable tips for you and all of wait, your listeners. Let's today. do it. Cause yeah, I mean, <laughs> and I, I've, you know, I've been trained to and learn to do this, but when you kind of get in your routine, you forget certain things. So I'm so excited to see what other tips you got for sleep. Cause I was just like, when you said that, I thought, duh, it's like the simplest thing ever. Like, why did I never think about that? And that's so, the thing. Fear-free doesn't have to be complicated. Right. There are so many easy um, things that don't take a lot of time, don't take a lot of, of, of investment um, that just change the, the mentality of how you practice. So it doesn't, it doesn't require thousands of dollars of investment. It doesn't require lots and lots of extra time. I mean, you put that ice pack on for 60 seconds while you're, you know, while you're talking to somebody else or, you know, while you're just holding the dog waiting to do the, your next thing while the other person's drawing up the site point. And, and it just changes how things are done. It's super easy. I love it. Well, let's dive in then. So let's start with say, let's start with dogs. So let's just, cause there's going to be a couple of differences, you know, you, we can kind of get more inclusive as far as, um, talking about all the things we could do as far as dogs, but I know there's certain things that with cats that will be different. Mm -hmm. So let's start with a dog. Why don't we go dog? What are the things that maybe you suggest prior to the visit? And then walk me through, like they come in, um, then, you know, when do we decide to use certain medications? We can do that after let's just do before they come in during the exam, what things might you do with a dog and then getting them out the door. So let's start with a dog they're on the phone talking to the receptionist, what might be something that you would have as a fear-free method? So, um, you know, as a specialist, the first thing that I do um, is I look through the records from the primary care veterinarian. And if I notice, you know, I'm looking for what medications have been prescribed. I'm looking for what the, you know, pet has presented to the primary care vet before. Um, but I'm also looking to see, is there any mention of behavior, caution with ears, caution with paws? Has have there been any other pre-visit pharmaceuticals that have been prescribed? And if I notice that, then I make sure to communicate to my receptionist that um, it, the client needs to be reminded to give that medication prior to the first visit. So that's a great way that primary care veterinarians can set up um, specialists for success is just equipping the client with those tools to make that first visit with us easier. Um, and so if behavior hasn't been addressed previously, um, then I have to assess how the animal does when they come in for their first visit with me. So having a really good understanding of canine and feline body language 
language is important for fear-free. So definitely want to make sure that yourself and your staff are knowledgeable on what subtle things that you can watch for during the course of that visit that would be an indication that the animal's fear, anxiety, and stress score is going up um, during certain parts of the exam. Because it does change. The entire time the animal's there, they're experiencing different things. So the animal may be totally fine if I'm just like scratching its back, but then if I go down to his paws, oh man, if those paws hurt, that fear, anxiety, and stress score can go through the roof. And you have to watch really closely for those things happening quickly so that you can adjust and bring them back down to baseline. So if, um, if behavior hasn't been addressed previously, and I do notice that there's fear, anxiety, and stress when the pet's there with me, then it's time for me to communicate with the owner. It's all about communication, communicating with the staff, body language of the animal. That's that animal communicating with you, communicating with the client, what you're seeing. Um, so you talk to the owner about how important it is that the animal is comfortable with the relationship that I have with it. Um, because that's what, that's what we establish is a relationship. Whether you're a general practice veterinarian or a specialist that is managing a chronic disease, you are setting the tone for what type of relationship that that client has with you. And it needs to be one of communication and trust. So the client has to trust that I have their best interests at heart. And that includes decreasing the animal's fear when they come to see me. And so um, Fear Free offers a really great handout um, for pet owners on how to decrease stress even before before they get to the veterinary clinic. Um, so uh, I think that's a, a great resource that we use um, and it is specific to both dogs and um, for cats. So some actionable things that you can do um, would be using things like pheromones. So Adaptal for dogs um, and Feel Away for cats because they are specifically designed for each um, different species. Um, working on for dogs, having the pet owner desensitize the dog to wearing a muzzle. A muzzle is not something that should be viewed as, uh, as negative. It, you should be creating a positive association to using that muzzle and using a muzzle in a way where you can still give an animal treats, um, through the muzzle because it's working on creating that positive association. Um, and I'm a big, big fan of music therapy, um, because there's a lot of evidence-based medicine behind, um, behind um, music therapy. Um, and I know a lot of pet owners already have uh, a music app, the Spotify um, on their phones. And so I'll, I'll ask them, hey, do you have Spotify on your phone? And so for dog owners, I recommend that they play. Um, there's a series of albums called Through a Dog's Ear, mm -hmm. um, and it is specifically designed. There's some classical albums. There's some reggae, both classical and reggae have some evidence um, that they will lower stress levels in dogs. And then there is a great album um, that has some research research associated with it called music for cats. Um, and that is specifically designed to go with a cat's neurologic system. So I have pet owners play that music in the car to and from the clinic so that when the pet gets there, I've already started working on decreasing its stress level. So it doesn't come in ramped up to the point where I can't get it back down to baseline again. Um, I also tell owners to bring their pet hungry um, and with their favorite treats because I am not a 
ashamed of bribing my patients for their affection whatsoever. My father-in-law does it all the time at home. He walks around with bacon in his pockets for the dogs. And so I am going to use that to my advantage and treat my patients uh, like royalty when they come in. And, you know, in a dermatology setting, I do have to keep in mind food allergies as well, but the more hungry they are, the more likely they will be to take um, the, the treats that I have available for them. I love that. I, um, with our puppy, when she's kenneled in our room, we play either classical or reggae music. So I feel like half the time my husband's like, Hey, Alexa, play Bob Marley. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a little more fun sometimes to mix it up. It's that, or like we end up with like Disney classical music, I think between like the, the, our daughter who is, you know, in that frozen. Oh yeah. uh, We got a lot of Disney on rotation at our house too. Yeah. So it's good. No, I think that's great. I love the, I love music therapy too. And that's something that I know we're going to move to talking about like in the clinic a bit, but that's something that we utilize in our clinic is um, we have speakers throughout the clinic and then, you know, if it's just us there and we're starting our day, the staff can kind of have whatever they want on. But then as soon as we're going to have animals in the, the building or if they're staying with us, especially, and then we put them in, you know, a kennel area, we always have usually classical music playing. And it's really important to us, myself and the other dermatologists I work for that we always remind them like, oh, don't forget, you know, there's the pet coming in. So let's switch that music. Cause I do mm-hmm. think there's something to be said for that. Not only do we have the research that backs that up, but if we think about ourselves, you know, if you want to relax and close your eyes, like and uh, you're probably not pumping heavy metal. Exactly. Maybe you are if you're trying to get some anxiety out, but not if you're probably (laughs) trying to relax. So um, I think that's fantastic. So then looking at moving into the clinic, so say it's a pretty stereotypical pet coming in that we're going to want to get psychology, maybe some lab work for um, starting with dogs and going to cats. What Mm -hmm. are some of the steps you're going to utilize? And I know they're kind of endless, but if you got any more like ice pack side to point area tips (laughs) for me that I don't know, I'm happy to write them down. So the main fear-free technique that I'm using, which is not dermatology specific, but is prioritizing my needs versus my wants. I mean, I say it all day, every day, and my technicians will, will almost read my mind at at this point. They'll say, Hey, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to take that as a want and not a need today. Right. I'm like, (laughs) you bet. Um, so a lot of my day is spent dealing with those really painful icky ears. Um, so when I have a patient with acute otitis, particularly that painful erosive ulcerative or purulent ears, any otoscopic exam that I'm going to perform is it's really limited. I mean, I think about what I want to do with that patient is look in there, right? But what I need to do is get cytology because cytology is going to guide my treatment um, of that infection. Um, So that's a perfect example of prioritizing needs versus wants. And so for most patients, ear cytology um, only creates like a minimal uh, increase in their stress level. And after it's obtained, I can reward them with lots and lots of treats to bring that stress level back down to baseline to create a positive association. And then once I send them home, I'm going to have the client work on creating a positive ear association with ear cleaning. and provide them with pain relievers and anxiolytics that they can use during the training at home so that when the animal comes back to see
see me, it's going to be much easier for me to get a good look in that ear. And so when it comes back for recheck, looking in the ear is going to be a need for me and not a want at that point. Um, so, I mean, you know, cytology is a critical diagnostic tool for patients um, and skin cytology is also important as well. So when I'm, um, when I'm examining a pet, I already kind of have been able to assess their temperament. Um, so I can touch the skin and figure out, are they painful? Are they paritic? And we all know that an itchy dog's best friend is the person that scratches them. So I use that to my advantage. I mean, I know they're itchy somewhere. You get a good butt rub going on with them. Yeah. They like lean into it. You have automatically made a, a, a friend out of that patient. And yeah. You also want to consider the, the, the density of nerve endings for where you want to sample your cytology. So if I think I can get similar cytology from, you know, the, the neck or the shoulders as I can from down by the paws, well, I'm going to go with the neck and shoulders. The patient is usually much more willing for me to do that than for me grabbing the paws and, and, and manipulating them. Although that is also very important, but again, prioritizing my needs and wants, and this is a great place where you can use your technicians to your advantage. Um, when I am taking a history, I often have the technicians in the room with me working on, once I've given them the okay to give the dog treats, working on training that animal to offer its paw. If the dog doesn't know how to shake already coming in to see me, they are training that behavior during that five minutes, five, five or 10 minutes that I'm taking a history on the phone with a, uh, with a client. Um, and by the time I'm done taking my history and I'm ready to move into my physical exam, exam, that dog will offer me its paw and I can get a good exam uh, of that paw. And the dog thinks that it's doing it to get a treat. And so a huge thing that you can do that does not take very long. I mean, five minutes is the perfect length of a behavior modification session. You don't want to do longer than that because the animal's going to lose interest. So you have that five minutes, take advantage of it, make your life easier and make that physical exam, um, a, a lot smoother for you. Um, yeah. So, I mean, most of those techniques work very well for, for dogs and cats. Um, but there are some differences and every animal is a little bit different. So it's going to be important for you to look at that pet's body language and determine what's working and what's not working. So generally I, a, um, generally I adopt a three seconds, three tries rule for dogs when it comes to doing what I need to do. Um, and if they are uncomfortable and they struggle for three seconds, then I stop. That's it. I, I don't go any further. Three seconds is enough um, for them to communicate to me that they are not willing to participate in what I'm asking of them. Then I adjust my approach. And it's you go, going back to that puzzle that you said, how can I use these tools to make this puzzle work? And how can I um, make this animal, animal more comfortable? And I'll try again. If I do that three times and, um, and they're still struggling, then it's going back to wants versus needs. I can't get what I, what I want to do that day. Uh, I need to talk to the owner about bringing the dog back on a separate visit uh, with a pre-visit pharmaceutical on board. I think all that's great. And it's funny because uh, last week's episode of the podcast was about uh, just kind of the basics of otitis and diagnosing. And um, I kind of mentioned you know, when do we need to sedate to look in the ears? And that I think comes down to exactly what you're saying. So 
if I know those ears are really swollen and painful and I have some work to do to open them up, whether it's with, you know, corticosteroids or infection control or both, um, then I wouldn't advocate to sedate that pet to look into the ear because I'm probably not going to see much. And there's mm-hmm. only so much sedation you can use to make a really painful ear. Half the time they'll even fight you on sedation. So that to me is different than some, than a pet that maybe has just been seeing me after seven years of chronic otitis. It's not necessarily swollen and, you know, uncomfortable, but they're just so fearful. Uh, they're so head shy from all the years of learning to be uncomfortable with their ears. Those are ones where I would advocate either trying a pre-visit pharmaceutical, or sometimes that isn't enough. Then I will use sedation just in the sense that, um, you know, we probably do need it at that point, but I know the pet's going to be uncomfortable. So I think that's the hard thing. Sometimes people ask, well, in this case, in all otitis cases, would you do this or this? And that's where it really comes down to that case. Cause if it's super swollen and, um, you know, pus coming out and stenotic there, I'm with you. There's just no way I'm going to see much anyway. I'm just going to make them more painful. Even with sedation, you're not going to see that much. So I'll tell owners, you know, we have this infection, we need to do this, we need a couple weeks to reduce the swelling, make your pet more comfortable, then let's and I'll tell them I I couldn't really see down the ear due to that swelling. Let's have them come back and then we'll evaluate that's much different to me than a pet where maybe, um, you know, we have some pets that are so um, they have been so sensitized to being uncomfortable with vet uh, clinics that we either have to sedate, you know, to collect cytology or to look in the ears in the beginning. But that to me is different than, cause that is at that point in need. So I love that thought. I think an otoscope exam in a patient that will allow it is part of a complete dermatologic exam. So mm-hmm. I want to otoscope every patient that comes in. That doesn't mean I necessarily get to otoscope every patient that comes in. Yeah. If I have a patient, like you said, they're coming in for paw chewing and, um, you know, I aim to look at the paws first. And then if, you know, we can, they're doing fine and their FAS is not that high and we can do the rest, then we'll aim for it. But I've had pets where we do what we need to do as we start even looking to their ear, you know, they become a bucking bronco or they're uncomfortable. Um, I'll just stop. And then when I talk to the owner, I ask them, have they been shaking their head? Have they been bothering their ears at all? And if they say no, I'll say, well, you know, Fido was moving quite a bit or he was getting anxious. So we didn't look in the ears today. Um, but certainly let me know if those signs happen. Like I let them know I didn't mm-hmm. really get to look in the ears that day. So they understand if all of a sudden, you know, they start shaking their head in a week or two, maybe there was something I couldn't evaluate. So it, it always comes down to communication and exactly. It always does. It's, it's amazing. I feel like any podcast episode can come down to how important it is just to communicate and make that client a part of your team with the patient. So, okay. So like you just like gave me so much great stuff and then say like, so leaving. So, you know, we don't, we need to do, they're about to leave the door. There might not be anything in particular that you're utilizing in those, um, uh, when they're leaving as far as fear-free, but what are things you're thinking of? So one that comes down to me is as we're ending an exam, I need to document, um, document, document, document. Like I want to document what worked for that pet because I don't want to reinvent the wheel the next time they come in that, you know, I think I'm going to remember, you know, they liked to be, you know, as a cat that liked to be examined in their carrier and they liked this tree, but the reality is we're all so busy you just really need to write it down and document. Is there anything else you can think of as far as ending that visit that's important? 
Yeah, that's a, uh, you bring up a great point. And one of the things that fear-free stresses is having an emotional medical record that's somewhere that is easily accessible for whoever is dealing with that patient. Um, and so there are um, different places where you can have that emotional re- medical record um, so that whoever is handling the patient can quickly look and see what type of treats does this patient like, what um, type of environment um, works well and work, works doesn't well. Does the pet prefer to be on the exam table? Does it prefer to be on the floor? Um, does it prefer to have blood from a jugular or from a back leg? Um, so very easy things that you can just jot down a note on. Um, I have a specific spot in my, um, in my, my soap um, where I write down the temperament um, and if there are anything that were triggers for that, that pet. So each time the pet comes in, you can very quickly see on my medical record, um, what type of temperament the animal has overall, what type of treats that it likes, um, and what did and did not work for it. Um, so very quickly, um, so a very good tool to have so that your staff can quickly communicate with each other um, without actually having to rehash or this happened last time. Um, this is what you can and cannot do. You can just quickly flip to that page in the medical record and see what's going on there. I love it. So then um, my next question as we kind of start wrapping up, but I think this is important because we've both kind of mentioned it a little bit. Um, but I love to hear your more specific. So it is the, when do we use pharmaceuticals? So, you know, say it is not necessarily a case that's had them before, um, that, you know, from your initial exam, looking over the records, when just say you're seeing the pet itself, what are indications where we might want to try something like a pre-visit pharmaceutical, which ones, I know we all have our different opinions of which ones we like more than others, which ones do you tend to like and are comfortable with? And then when do you, or do you even make the the um, decision to sedate for portions of the exam if you need to. Sure. So I use pre-visit pharmaceuticals very, very often. My technicians will tell you it is something that goes home on a regular basis. Um, But generally, whenever I think an animal would benefit from a more thorough physical exam, the next time it comes in to see me, um, or or if it's a dog that has failed that three seconds, three tries rule, or in cats, it's two seconds, two tries. Cats are not as forgiving as dogs are as far as creating that long-term impression. Um, So They hold grudges easier. Oh, for sure. So many (laughs) grudges. So that way I can do things that I may have postponed um, because they were wants instead of needs. I want to make sure that I'm being as thorough as possible. And if I can't do it that day, I need to set myself up for success the next day. Um, but that also comes along with communicating and educating the owner. Why are we using pre-visit pharmaceuticals? What can they do to minimize the stress before the pet gets to see me for that next exam? As far as sedation, um, I use sedation if I have a need that day Um, and the patient's fear, anxiety, and stress uh, score continues to escalate despite me adjusting my approach to minimize their stress. So generally, um, almost all my biopsies get sedation. There's very rarely a case where I think the animal is comfortable enough doing an awake biopsy, even if they're a really, really good dog and I'm biopsying a part of the body that doesn't really, you know, require 
th that I could get away with doing local um, anesthetic on. I think it's kinder to the uh, to the pet to provide them with sedation so that they're not aware of that lidocaine going in because it can be painful um, and uh, you know and, and exactly what we're doing. So we're, we're not restraining them for that entire time that they're being biopsied. But I certainly have done some awake biopsies on patients that um, uh, sedation would be um, would be a, a significant risk. Um, but I also think that sedation is helpful if I think there's some type of foreign object or a mass in an ear, and I absolutely need to look that day, then I'll recommend quick sedation so that I can get a better look in the ear. Um, not for those really uh, hugely infected ears. I mean, I, it's got to be an ear where I think I'm going to get a good look in there so that I can give the owner some more information. But for things like deep ear cleanings and video otoscopy, um, that in my clinic is always done under anesthesia because I want to make sure that airway is protected. And you, I mean, you said it already, the sedation doesn't always provide you with enough that that pet holds still when the ear is painful. And that's because there's cranial nerves that are innervating that. That's a special sense. It's really well protected. And so if you are not doing anesthesia, you're not going to be, um, you're not going to be able Able to get as good of a cleaning and a look in that ear as you would um, with having them completely under anesthesia. So typically those pets um, that need a deep ear cleaning, they'll go home with a pre-visit pharmaceutical if I think that they would benefit from that. And then they come back on a different day for anesthesia with uh, that pre-visit pharmaceutical on board because it's a helpful part of multimodal anesthesia for them. Yeah. Do you have particularly a favorite do, that you use? For me, I think honestly, like gabapentin or trazodone, depending on the dog, I mean, usually gabapentin in cats works really well. I've had it. Some one work great in some dogs, the other work great in some dogs, but where do you sit as far as your thoughts on that? So trazodone and gabapentin are my go-tos for sure. Um, you know, there's been research to show that acepromazine does not have anxiolytic effects to it. Um, so it is more of a, a paralytic uh, medication. So those animals are still terrified. Um, they just can't do anything about it. I want an animal that actually has its anxiety score lowered. And so trazodone gives me that in dogs. Um, and it, it's not really sedating. I mean, I, I don't see these dogs coming in like, you know, drunk or woozy on trazodone, I see them relaxed. Um, and so that's what I'm looking for is a relaxed animal. And I have uh, a dog, um, in, in my family who is an allergic dog. He actually inspired my love of dermatology. Um, and he is a behavior mess. So I've had to really kind of embrace these practices for my own pet as well. And I use trazodone with him every time he has to come into the clinic and lucky me, he has been diagnosed with Cushing's disease in the oh, last year. So he He's had to come into the clinic quite a bit. And my technicians and I have worked really hard on trying to minimize his stress. He still doesn't love coming into the clinic, but he's way better than he was when we first started working with him. They know exactly how to hold him and which position he's most comfortable so that we can get a blood draw and an ear cytology on him. Um, but if you hold him any other way, then he gets really stressed out. But I talk to clients about that. Hey, I use trazodone in my own dog. It's really helpful. And I think that your dog would benefit from it as well. Um, 
in cats, gabapentin is my anxiolytic of choice. I think it works really well um, for cats. Trazodone is if I need more sedation in cats and I don't use trazodone by itself. I use trazodone in combination um, with gabapentin. If the gabapentin alone is not getting me um, enough um, anxiolysis for those cats and I need them a little bit more sedated um, because it doesn't have that anxiolytic effect in cats that it does in dogs. So for dogs, Trazodone, um, I start with, sometimes we'll add on Celio, which is the transmucosal um, dexmedetomidine. And then for cats, um, uh, gabapentin plus or minus Trazodone. Awesome. I love it. Well, you have just given us so much information and honestly, stuff I think is extremely important. Um, the last question and um, is for as far as going home, People are listening to this podcast. They're inspired. We all know our, we go home, our lives get crazy and they only want to probably re-listen to our episode and us gab so many times. <laughs> so um, I would love to hear what resources you find helpful. And I know in particular, you are at the beginning of your own venture of providing a resource that I absolutely want you to end telling us your goals and what that is so everyone can listen in. Sure. Yeah. So as far as fear-free resources, the fear-free certification course is fantastic. And it's not just the course itself, but also the, the, but also the community that they've created within the fear-free certified professionals, Facebook group that you have access to after you've completed the certification course. There's lots of discussion in there about how to approach individual cases, about how to work with um, different medical record systems to create that electronic medical record that we talked about. Um, so a really just, I mean, huge, wealth of information in that course. Um, and then also the late Dr. Sophia Yin has an excellent resource for low stress handling and restraint. Um, and her resources include tons and tons of videos and examples on how to position animals comfortably um, so that you can rid your clinic of the cat scruff. I mean, really, there's just no need to scruff cats at any point in time anymore in veterinary medicine. Um, so lots of, of great videos to help train your staff on low stress handling and restraint there. But I also want to mention that I know a lot of veterinarians are nervous about talking to their clients about allergies and long-term treatment of skin diseases, or they just don't have enough time to do it. I get it. We're overwhelmed with the amount of cases that we're seeing. So communication is really, really key in these cases, but without the time to do it, 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 there's a fear that you may not have gotten your point across. Um, and then there's also the fear of what clients will leave the clinic and find on the internet after they've had a discussion about what's happening with their pets. So I wanted to provide a resource for general practice veterinarians so that they could direct the pet owners to supplemental information that was evidence-based and reliable as well as easily accessible. Um, so I created a podcast called Your Vet Wants You to Know. The podcast has short 15 to 20 minute episodes on lots and lots of common topics um, discussed in veterinary practices with pet owners, things like flea allergies, food allergies, environmental and episodes on medications like Apoquil, steroids, Cytopoint. Um, and it's not just for dermatologic diseases either. I have great episodes coming out on internal medicine conditions, on orthopedic diseases, neurologic conditions, nutrition, end of life discussions, and so much more. Um, so I hope that the Your Vet Wants You to Know podcast becomes a great resource for veterinarians to say to the pet owner, hey, 
I think your dog has a food allergy, have the discussion about food allergies in the clinic, and then provide them with an episode of the podcast that they can then listen to on their drive home from their clinic, which will reinforce the message that they're trying to get across to the pet owner. I love it. I think it is going to be so successful. I I'm so proud of you. I honestly think it is an alternative way to provide clients that education without, you know, the thought of it doesn't always have to be a handout or something we've traditionally relied on. Mm -hmm. Um, I will be definitely one of the first ones to use it because I feel like that is, I always say like, I would (laughs) I could practice so much, like see more cases and be, you know, happier if I didn't always have to do medical records. Cause it is so, especially with allergies, you know, we're biased, but it is so consuming for clients to take all the information in. Mm-hmm. And the reason I created this podcast was to train veterinarians with all of us being short on time. If you could utilize your commute home or to the clinic to learn, um, that with us, especially being busy moms that people could do that. So I just think it is so smart to allow clients, Hey, download the podcast before you even leave our clinic, you have a ride home. It's fresh in your mind. Listen to this podcast episode that really breaks it down for you. And I think it's going to be a really, really great resource for clients. And as we've already said numerous times, client communication is so essential in dermatology and in medicine in general. So just having another tool that they can go back to, I think is brilliant. And I think it will be wonderful. Thanks. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, you should be. Well, I just have loved having you on. Um, it's really been a wonderful conversation. And I've, like I said, I've learned a lot. I'm going to be loading up on the ice packs at our clinic for all the side of what we've been giving lately. Um, and yeah, just thank you for sharing, sharing your knowledge and your passion on this topic. It will be so helpful to all the general veterinarians and the technicians and CSRs and whoever else decides to listen to the Derm Vet podcast um, just to practice I think safer, happier medicine in the clinic. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Well, that was a fantastic discussion. I was so happy to have Dr. Lancelotti on. As you can tell, she's very passionate about fear-free in the clinics. And again, since we see these dermatology cases all the time, it's important for us to really make the pet and client comfortable. I really encourage you guys to check out Your Vet Wants You to Know as a resource for your clients, especially knowing how crazy the clinics are, saving some time by having some accessible, um, reliable information I think will be really important. Also, don't forget to get on the DermVet email newsletter. You can do that by joining or checking out the www.thedermvet.com. You can tell it's the end of a long day of mom and for me. Um, and you, there's a way to sign up for the email newsletter there. And also always continue to rate the podcast highly so we can reach more people. Thank you everyone for joining us.